Now we're continuing to rush our way through Paul's letter to the Romans. Tonight we reach the fourth chapter of that epistle, and so I will be reading chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 8, with no guarantees that I'll be able to cover this much tonight. I would ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness." Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. The Word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. Let us pray. Again, our Father, as we have another opportunity to consider the depths and riches of the gospel that has been proclaimed to us in the New Testament, has been accomplished for us by Thine only begotten Son, We ask that this evening, as we continue this contemplation of the depths and riches of that grace by which we are redeemed, we pray that we would have it confirmed in our hearts once and for all that the just shall live by faith. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We recall that last week, as Paul was continuing to explain the ground of our justification, he asked the question, where is boasting? And you remember his own response to that question was the emphatic reply, it is excluded. Since our justification is by faith and by faith alone, by no merit in us, or endeavors of our works by which we earn our favor with God, there is no room whatsoever for boasting save in Christ. Now, what happens here in this section of the epistle is that Paul is now going to bring forth Exhibit A to prove his case, not by an abstract exposition of doctrine, but by a historical reconnaissance by which he reaches back into the Old Testament to the person of Abraham, 
who was known to the Jews as the father of the faithful. And Paul looks to Abraham as the supreme example of how a person is justified by faith and not by works. Now, before we get into this exposition, let us note at the outset how important it is for us to understand that salvation occurred in the Old Testament exactly in the manner that it is accomplished in the New Testament. When Paul speaks of Abraham's justification being by faith, that's as much a shorthand statement for Abraham and for us that that means that Abraham was justified by the righteousness of Christ. The only difference between our justification and Abraham's justification was that Abraham looked forward to the promised one who would be his redeemer. He rejoiced to see his day. He trusted in the promise of that redeemer, whereas we look backwards to the past, to the work of Jesus that was accomplished then. And so the only difference is the time frame of where the object of faith is. Abraham's faith looked forward, our faith looks backward, but the ground of Abraham's justification was exactly the same as ours, namely the person and work of Jesus. I say that that's very important because the theology that is most dominant in our country today tends to see a strong disjunction between salvation in the Old Testament and salvation in the New Testament, seeing the Old Testament as the age of law, the New Testament as the age of grace, and that uh, God's covenant was different in terms of redeeming people then than it is today. But Paul refutes that idea right here when he brings forward as his example of the doctrine of justification by faith, not somebody from the New Testament, but somebody from the Old Testament who is Father Abraham. And so he says, what shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What he's saying clearly is that Abraham is also excluded from boasting because Abraham was not justified by works, as we are not as well. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Now, what Paul does here is cite a statement that is found in the book of Genesis in chapter 15. We remember in that chapter, God appeared to Abraham, and he told him that he would be his shield and his very great reward. And Abraham was staggered by that announcement because Abraham was one of the wealthiest men on the face of the earth. 
And what do you give a man who has everything? Well, to the Jew, you give him progeny. You give him sons. That Abraham had plenty of cattle, plenty of livestock, plenty of property, but he had no son. And he said to God, how can you be my great reward when I have no son and my heir is my servant Eliezer of Damascus. And you recall on that occasion that God said, no, Abraham, Eliezer, your servant, will not be your heir, but one coming from your own loins will be your heir. And that staggering promise that God gave to Abraham in his old age resulted in the statement that Abraham believed God. He trusted the promise of God. Now, that faith was not without some admixture of wavering, of doubt. As we know in that text, he said, how can I know for sure that you're going to do this? And then God put him to sleep and gave him that magnificent theophany in which God, because he could swear by nothing greater, swore by himself in the drama of that vision. But what we're concerned about in chapter 15 is the statement, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is, Abraham was reckoned or considered by God to be righteous, not because of any righteous deeds that Abraham had performed, but he was counted just by God simply on the basis that he believed the promise. Now, what is problematic about Paul's argument here in chapter 4 of Romans is the way in which James deals with the question in his epistle. And so let's uh, fast forward to a moment in the New Testament to the book of James, to chapter 2, beginning at verse 14. And let me read this for you. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead. And now here's where the plot thickens, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father 
justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And as he was called the friend of God, you see then, a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Then he goes on to say, likewise, Rahab the harlot also was justified by works and cites the episode from her life. You can see clearly now why in the middle of the 16th century, after the Protestant Reformation was in full swing, that the Roman Catholic Church had its ecumenical council uh, in the city of Trento in Italy, known later as the Council of Trent. And in the sixth session of that council, as we've already seen, Rome first of all set forth her doctrine of justification and then set forth several canons condemning the Protestant understanding. And with their exposition of the doctrine of justification at the Council of Trent, the Council affixed uh, biblical footnotes or texts to biblical texts, footnotes to texts uh, from the Bible that would support the decrees that they set forth. And two or three times in the sixth session, they quote from James chapter 2, and particularly the verse we see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And so on the surface, it would seem that there could not possibly be any more clear repudiation of the doctrine of justification by faith alone than what you've just heard uh, from the pen of the Apostle James. So, what do you do with that? Well, many look at that and say, well, I guess Luther was wrong, and the Protestant church has been wrong ever since, and we need to return to Rome and say, fathers, we have sinned. What is, makes the plot more difficult is that when James makes his case that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone, his primary exhibit, his exhibit A in the court of theological debate is none other than Father Abraham. Now, it would be nice if we could resolve this conundrum by saying, well, when James speaks about justification, he uses a different Greek word from the word that Paul uses in Romans 4. Well, unfortunately, things get even worse when we realize that both James and Paul use exactly the same Greek term. Now, this is one of those occasions where my wife will comment to me afterwards, I don't know why you do this, dig yourself such a hole that I don't see how you're ever going to get out of that hole. And I say, be patient, my dear. No hole so bad that the Word of God can't rescue us from it. Well, let's look at, a little bit more deeply at these uh, two appeals 
one by Paul and one by James. Some scholars have argued that Romans was written before the book of James and that James wrote to correct Paul's error of justification by faith alone. Others argue that James uh, was written first and that Paul gave this lengthy exposition in Romans to correct the error that James was disseminating among early Christians. Others have argued that neither one of them knew about the other person's writing, and is this what you have here? Is It is what it is. It's a plain contradiction in the Bible between the teaching of Paul and the teaching of James. Now, when I come in a text like this, I come as one already persuaded that this is nothing less than the Word of God, and I am also persuaded that God doesn't speak in a forked tongue. And so, as problematic as it seems on the surface, we must dig more deeply into the text and see if there is a genuine basis for resolution. You know how Luther first sought to resolve the problem. His Catholic uh, adversaries kept rubbing his nose, as it were, into the second chapter of James until Luther, in frustration, said, James is an epistle of straw. It's a right strawy epistle that doesn't belong in the canon of the New Testament, so it doesn't have canonical authority. Luther repented of that later in his life and finally acknowledged that, yes, indeed, James was part of the canon of sacred scripture and that he had just uh, struggled with a little misunderstanding of it earlier in his teaching career. All right, well, how can we possibly resolve these things? Well, the first thing we do is that we examine the context in which these statements are made, and you ask the question, what question is the author trying to answer? I began my teaching career not teaching theology, but rather teaching philosophy, which many students in college found very difficult to deal with because of its abstract uh, contents. And uh, as they struggled to grasp the ideas that were bandied about by various philosophers, I tried to help them in their attempts to sort these things out. And I would say, for example, when you're reading Descartes, let's first of all ask the question, what problem confronted Descartes and the people of his time that provoked him to undertake this deep analysis of how we know what we know that he was engaged in. And once the students could understand what the problem was that the philosophers were trying to unravel, it went a long way to help them follow the thinking and the reasoning process of the philosopher. Well, in the same manner, I'd like to suggest to you tonight that we ask that question, first of all, with respect to James. I think we already know what question the Apostle Paul is addressing throughout the entire book of Romans. He's obviously dealing with the question, how can an unjust person possibly stand in the final analysis 
in the presence of a just and holy God. Now, that's not the question that James is addressing here in chapter 2. Well, what is? Well, let's look at it. Where's Bus Weibel? Do I have to ask that question? You know where he is with his Pittsburgh Steeler tie dangling around his neck. He's watching the football game. He told me after church this morning, I can't guarantee that I'll be there tonight, Reverend. I said, well, you better make sure they win. <laughs> Verse 14 gives us the clue where James himself tells us what question he's trying to answer. Let's listen very carefully to it. He asks this question, what does it profit, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but have not works? And then he asks the question, can that faith save him? Now, this was one of the most critical questions of the 16th century Reformation. When Luther was insisting that justification was by faith alone, people heard him say, oh, that, that means all you have to do is give intellectual recognition that Jesus was the Savior of the world. It's just like, do you believe that, that George Washington was the first president of the United States? And you say, yes, I believe that. That is, you grant that that is a true proposition. But that's not the same thing as, as trusting your life for eternity to George Washington. You don't have personal faith and trust for your salvation in George Washington, do you? So that Luther was never an apostle of what we would call easy believism, where people just say, oh yeah, I believe, and that's it. <clears throat> if you would have asked me before I was a Christian, if I believed in God, I would have said yes. If you would have asked me that I believe that Jesus was the Son of God, I would have said yes. But I had no personal relationship with Christ, no saving faith whatsoever. This was merely an intellectual assent to an abstract proposition. James himself here in the text said, you say you believe in God? Big deal. All that does is qualify you to be a demon. Anybody can believe in the existence of God. Satan believes that de demons know that God exists, and they tremble before them. But they don't put their trust in God for their salvation. So that Luther had to spell out the ingredients of saving faith that include not only the data, the content that you believe, but also the intellectual assent to the propositions. But if you have the content and you have the assent, and that's all you have, you're not going to be justified. The third element and the most critical element that Luther delineated was what he called fiducia, which is personal trust in Christ. That's what's necessary for salvation. Jim Kennedy in his Evangelism Explosion program uses the illustration of a chair. He'll say to people, do you see that object over there? And they'll say yes. He said, do you believe that that's a chair? And they'll say, yes, we believe that that's a chair. Well, do you believe that if you sat in that chair, that that chair would hold you up? And you look at it, it seems firm, it seems well-constructed. And so you say, yeah, I believe that that chair will hold me up. And then, then Dr. Kennedy will say, well, 
is it holding you up now? You say, no. He says, why not? He said, because I'm not sitting in it. You can believe that Jesus can save you without having saving faith. To have saving faith, you have to trust that he does save you, and you put your trust in him and in him alone. Now, in addition to that, to combat the uh, heretical notion of antinomianism, that if you have faith, you can behave as badly as you want, you can sing the hymn, Saved from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin all I want and still have remission. That's the theme song of the antinomian, and that was not the song of the reformers, because the formula, justification by faith alone, had a footnote to it. The full phrase was this, justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. That the point was this, if you have true faith, that true faith will, not someday, but immediately and necessarily begin to manifest itself in your changed life. And if no change follows from your profession of faith, all you have is a profession of faith. You don't possess the real thing because real faith always issues in some degree of obedience so that works flow necessarily out of faith. But the point of the gospel is those works that flow out of true faith are in no way the grounds of your justification. Before a single work flows from your faith, the moment true faith is present, God declares you just in his sight. But now what James is addressing is the question, what use is it, what is the profit if I say I have faith but have no works? Will that faith save me? And what's the answer? Obviously not. I've said this so many times, the people of St. Andrews are sick of hearing me say it, but it's so urgent that you understand this that I keep repeating it, and that is that nobody has ever been saved by a profession of faith. If you raised your hand in an evangelistic meeting or if you walked down the aisle or whatever you did, and by professing faith, that doesn't save anybody. It's the possession of faith that justifies it, not the profession. Now, if you possess it, you should profess it. But Jesus makes it clear that people can profess it without possessing it. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They say, Lord, Lord, and he says, you are workers of evil. I don't even know your name. And so true faith must always manifest itself in obedience to some degree. And so James says, again, his question is, if somebody says he has faith but doesn't have works, can faith save him? And he then gives the illustration of the person who sees somebody who's hungry and cold and says, be warm, be filled, and so on, depart in peace. But if you don't give them the things that are needed, what does it profit? What good is it? What is the utility of it? Thus, here's his conclusion, faith by itself 
That is faith that exists in a vacuum, if it doesn't have works, is dead. It's a dead faith. And the whole point that James is making is a dead faith can't save anyone. Luther said the faith that justifies is a fides viva, a vital faith, a living faith. A faith that is alive and well, it's healthy, it brings forth the fruit of true faith. A profession of faith that produces nothing is useless. It is a faith that has no life in it. And what James is saying is that that kind of faith is a dead faith. And someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Now it's show and tell time. And here is something very important to understand. That James is saying, you say you have faith. How can I know that that profession of faith is genuine and legitimate unless you show me that faith by your works? That's how faith is demonstrated. It's made manifest. Now, let me just fast forward just a second. I said a little while ago that both uh, Paul and James used the same Greek word for justification. The word here is dikiosune. And if you look at that word in the Greek, it has more than one use. It can mean to be justified in the sense of being declared righteous by God in the supreme sense of dukiosune, or it can mean at an earthly level the demonstration of the truth of an affirmation. Jesus uses this very word in a metaphorical way when he says wisdom is justified by her children. What does that mean? When Jesus said, wisdom is justified by her children, he was saying to his hearers that if you want to know if a plan is a wise plan, you have to wait until you see the consequences, until you see the outcome. He did not mean that the abstract concept of wisdom gains entrance into heaven by having children. No, he's speaking metaphorically that wisdom is demonstrated or shown to be true wisdom by its fruit or by its results. Now, again, remember what James is wrestling with. Somebody claims to have faith. And and James is saying, show me. And the only way you can demonstrate to me that your faith is legitimate faith by your obedience, by your behavior. Let me ask you this. Does God have to wait to see my behavior before he knows if the faith that I profess is authentic? No. God doesn't need to see the works. 
I may need to see the works. James may need the same works. And when James quotes Abraham, he quotes him from Genesis 22, where Abraham offers Isaac up on the altar. It's critical for us to understand that Paul has Abraham justified in the sense in which Abraham was justified in the sense that Paul is using justification already in Genesis 15. The whole point that Paul is making here, as we'll see God willing next week, is that God didn't have to wait to Mount Moriah to know whether Abraham's faith was authentic. The moment Abraham believed, God counted him righteous. We don't know whether his faith was authentic until we see how he responds to the test that God gives him in Genesis 22, which is what James is speaking about here. He's speaking about vindicating, manifesting, or demonstrating the truth of a profession of faith. Go back to what he said. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect or completed? And the scripture was fulfilled. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And as he was called the friend of God, we see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Let me restate that, that a man is vindicated by his works and not by faith alone. There's nothing here in James by which James speaks of any merit attending the obedience of Abraham. But he is describing Abraham's obedience as testimony and proof that his profession of faith is real and valid. Now, I know that that's difficult, but I think that that does resolve the problem between the two writers of sacred scripture. Having said that, let's go back now to Romans chapter 4, where Paul said, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what the scriptures say, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. That is to say that if the basis or the foundation or what I keep calling the ground of our justification were the works of Abraham, then Abraham's justification would not be by grace. If it, his works were good enough to make him just in the sight of God, if Abraham brought merit to the table, whether meritum de congruo or de condigno, as we looked at last week, then his justification would not have been reckoned as grace, but as debt. That is to say, God would owe him justification. And this is the whole point that Paul is demolishing here. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. That doesn't mean that your faith is the righteousness that is the, the grounds for your salvation. No, 
Faith only lay holds of Christ. It's the instrument by which you are linked to Jesus. Only Christ's righteousness is the grounds of your justification. But when God declares his legal judgment, his forensic judgment of your status in his sight, when he sees faith, he counts you righteous, even when in and of yourself you are still ungodly, you are still a sinner. This is simuliusus et peccator, as we've already looked at, with a vengeance. Then he goes to David, and he says, just as David describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. In our day, the doctrine of justification has been battled afresh within so-called evangelical circles, where it reveals that evangelical circles are not truly evangelical. Because anyone who challenges sola fide cannot do that and legitimately be counted as an evangelical because justification by faith alone is at the very heart of historic evangelicalism. But be that as it may, we have all kinds of people who call themselves evangelicals, but uh, they call themselves uh, evangelicals uh, with a dead vocation. Their profession of evangelicalism is a false profession because they deny the evangel that defines evangelicalism. But in any case, at the center of the debate right this minute as I speak is whether or not the aspect of imputation is crucial to justification by faith alone. When we saw this uh, startling uh, manifestation about 15 years ago called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, when some leading evangelical people in our country declared to the world that they had a unity of faith in the gospel with their Roman Catholic friends, which friends uh, uh, appealed to their own Orthodox Catholic doctrine. Nevertheless, these so-called evangelical leaders declared that they had a union of faith in the gospel uh, with their Catholic friends. And in discussions with them, I raised the question, here's the situation. I know I don't have a unity of faith with those people who deny justification by faith alone, who preach a different gospel from the biblical gospel. I can be friends with them. I can have a unity in concerns about abortion and a host of other things, but not in the gospel because we don't believe the same gospel. And I said, here's my problem with you. If you have a unity of faith in the gospel with these people, I don't have a unity in the faith in the gospel with those people. How can I possibly have a unity of faith with you? In the gospel, and so we had these series of meetings that were very important. And in that more, in that uh, one meeting that was held, I kept pressing the point to one of the leaders of this group. I said, "Do you believe that justification by faith alone is essential to the gospel?" And he kept saying to me, "Well, I think it's central to the gospel." I said, "That's not what I asked you." I asked you, is it essential? That is, if you don't have justification by faith alone, 
you don't have the gospel. And as try as hard as I could, I couldn't get the man to make that assertion. But so much controversy arose out of that uh, ECT initiative that they came out with a second document, which in my judgment was far worse than the first one, in which they said, we together agree in the faith of the gospel, we because we believe that justification requires faith and that we believe that we are saying the same things that the reformers were saying in the 16th century. And then they came to me and they said, well, what do you think now? I said, what do I think now? Like Michael Horton says, if you're making chocolate chip cookies and you, make, you get flour and you get milk and you get uh, uh, sugar and you mix it all together, you have the stuff that makes up chocolate chip cookies, but there's one critical ingredient that is missing. There are any chocolate chips, and without the chocolate chips, you don't have chocolate chip cookies. And without sola fide, you don't have justification by faith alone, because in that second document, at the end of it, they said, we leave the question of imputation for later discussion. You leave the question of imputation for later discussion, that's the chocolate chip. <laughs> that the whole issue historically is, again, how does the righteousness of Christ become mine? Is it because it's poured into me through the sacrament of baptism and later again through the, the uh, sacrament of penance? Or is the righteousness of Christ imputed to me, counted for me, transferred to my account. Here's the whole debate in a nutshell. Is the righteousness by which I am justified a righteousness that is found in me, an inherent righteousness? The Council of Trent says you must have righteousness inherent. It must be in you before God will ever decree that you are justified. That's why you have to have this whole structure of purgatory and all the rest, and you may spend millions of years there until you get enough righteousness in you before God will ever pronounce you just. That's no gospel. That's bad news. For me, it would leave me without hope. If I have to, have, if I have to wait until I am righteously, inherently righteous, I'm a dead man. But the gospel is that we are righteous on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus that is transferred to our account, imputed to us, what Luther called a justitium alienum, a, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is extra nos, outside of us. The righteousness by which you are justified is the righteousness that Christ manifested in his life perfect obedience. It's his righteousness that justifies you. All you bring to the table is your trust in him and his righteousness. You add one ounce of your own righteousness as your confidence and your justification, you're repudiating the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying here without any ambiguity. Citing David, David described the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes 
righteousness apart from works. Do you know, dear friend, that blessedness? There is no greater blessedness under heaven than to have God in his mercy and God in his grace to transfer the righteousness of Jesus to your account. You think that I do children's stories on Christmas Eve about a priest with dirty clothes just to entertain little kids? No, the story about the priest in the dirty clothes is the story of imputation. It's the story of the gospel. The only gospel by which we stand or fall. And so, dear friends, imputation is what it's all about. It's Christ's righteousness counted for you. Can you imagine that? That when I stand before God, he knows everything I've ever done wrong, every evil thought, every wicked deed I've ever performed. And he looks at me. And if he looks at me inherently, all he sees are filthy rags. But that's not how he looks at me. He looks at me and he sees Christ. He sees the covering of the righteousness of Christ, the cloak of righteousness. That's why the New Testament says of Jesus, Christ is our righteousness. He's my righteousness. The only righteousness I possess is the righteousness of Christ, and I possess it by transfer, by reckoning, by imputation. So I say to my friends in the theological world, you negotiate imputation, you give it all away. That's the article upon which sola fide stands or falls, and sola fide is the article upon which the gospel stands or falls, and the gospel is the article upon which the church stands or falls. God willing, we'll continue this exposition next week. Let's pray. Father, we don't even begin to understand how blessed we are to have Christ's righteousness, that perfect righteousness, count for us. There's no way that we could conceivably earn it. We know that all that we receive from you is not from debt, but from grace, for which we will be eternally grateful. Amen.